We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning and we're pleased to be joined once again by Sarah Bronin, architect and law professor and also the head of a new group called Desegregate CT. It's a new coalition, just five or six weeks old. And Sarah Bronin, tell us what groups comprise this coalition and what your goal is. Great. Hi, Erin. Thank you so much for having me on again. So Desegregate Connecticut is a coalition of about 30 organizations and growing. Um, and our primary goal is to tackle statewide land use laws and try to figure out how we can change them to make a more inclusive Connecticut. So the organizations on that list so far include uh, maybe some surprising, uh, surprising ones. So, for example, the Connecticut Institute of Architects was one of the first ones to sign on, as well as the Connecticut chapter of the American Planning Association. Now, both of these represent thousands of professionals around the state of Connecticut that in some ways have been, um, you could say, complicit in our system of land use. And uh, actually, that makes them very well positioned to be on the front lines of the group that's trying to identify the changes that need to be made to make our uh, to make them more inclusive. You had a press conference this past week, and one other surprise, at least to me, was the Connecticut Conference of Municipalities spoke. Yes. So what they said at the press conference, and they were very clear about this, that that CCM and um, it would not be used or could not be used or should not be used by legislators as an excuse to not act. That's really what Joe DeLong said at the press conference. He was a, the leader of the CCM. And what he was really saying is that at this point, CCM is not going to be uh, shouting local control, throwing up their hands and running away from the table. They want to be at the table because they recognize that these problems of uh, discrimination and racism that are embedded in our land use system are, uh, in part, the responsibility of municipalities to fix. So what, uh, so what he was saying on Tuesday, I thought was really important, and that would be one of the other surprises I think of of the way this uh, coalition has evolved. We have some very unlikely people uh, on on board now. Certainly, it's a patchwork of of laws and regulations around the state. Tell us some of the policies that you're hoping to change. Well, so one example of a policy that uh, is, I think, very low-hanging fruit is this idea that we can have 
accessory dwelling units, which are small units, on the same lot as a single family home. And a lot of communities around the state already do this, about half of them already allow these uh, by right or with some conditions. And another good chunk of them allow them subject to a special permit. But what the communities that don't have them are missing out because they, accessory dwelling units or ADUs, have a, a number of benefits. First, they create small scale housing that is naturally affordable within existing buildings and within existing neighborhoods. It, we're not talking with ADUs about building a brand new 80 unit apartment building. We're talking about uh, naturally occurring affordable housing that people can have uh, right within their communities that already exist. The second thing is that ADUs actually enable homeowners to stay in their homes because they provide a separate source of income. And so you can rent it out to someone, you can have a family member, it's an in-law apartment or a granny flat is another term for these. Um, you can have uh, somebody who might not have access to your community, to your schools living in one of these places. I think that's the easiest, the lowest hanging fruit and it works within existing, um, existing neighborhood, uh, the existing neighborhood uh, architecture. Now, that's just one of about 10 top 10 proposals that we've listed on our website. Um, that, that should be a pretty easy one to create more housing. Some of the other items on the list include capping local fees for new housing developments and also kind of standardizing the approval process because it can vary greatly from community to community. Yes, absolutely. And so the big overall goals for our effort are threefold. One is to create housing supply is to enable housing diversity and this and the third is to uh, improve the process so the two you just mentioned capping town fees and standardizing processes would improve the process and make it more uh, more equal whether it, you know, no matter what kind of housing you are trying to build now these proposals your hope was to have them included in the special session coming up later this week it seems that is, is not in the cards. Legislative leaders and the governor have outlined four proposals, and this is not among them. Do you still have hope that uh, they will be taken up in, in this coming session, or might they be put off until September or next year? I have hope that legislators will tackle you if they're serious about systemic races embedded in our laws. So zoning reform is, I think, one of the easier things they can tackle because it is something that has been studied in Connecticut. It has, is something where the solutions are pretty clear, and it is something that can be done without costing the state anything. So for legislators who, who are interested in tackling systemic racism, in a way, zoning reform is one of the easier things that they can do. And what we're proposing at this point is are pretty incremental, modest changes. We're not, again, suggesting that 80-unit uh, apartment buildings be built in every town across Connecticut. Rather, we're trying to look at some of the, the lower-hanging fruit accessory dwelling units, uh, what we call middle housing, which is between two and four units. I think all of these proposals are very reasonable, and, and Republicans and Democrats alike should look at them as both uh, ways to advance social equity, but also to uh, advance our economy. These exclusionary zoning practices, did they kind of appear on the books organically, or was there something more nefarious in, in some cases in, in, in trying to keep certain people out? 
Well, if you look at the dawn of zoning uh, about 100 years ago, zoning really developed to segregate land uses from each other. And uh, even an early Supreme Court opinion, the um, Village of Euclid case, talked about apartment buildings being parasites on a community. It was that attitude that I think undergirded many of our uh, zoning laws uh, starting a century ago. And you still see some of that today, where even though perhaps people are not motivated uh, by racism itself, uh, the effects of land use policies uh, have disparate impacts on the poor and on um, uh, people of color. So, you know, zoning evolved, I think, primarily historically to separate different land uses from each other, but in a way, they've remained set in stone and they still have that impact even though that might not be anyone's intent in this day and age explain how that is done i I know there are are sometimes they they use the the term character to try to prohibit certain developments the idea of character is something that's uh, actually embedded right now in state law so state law says that zoning commissions essentially have to include in their considerations the character of the community. But if you look at the way that term has been used, it has been used in many instances in public hearings across the state as a euphemism for uh, racism and, and classism. Uh, you know, if we, The character of the community will change if these kinds of people are allowed here or if this kind of development is allowed here. Our thought is that it's time to take that loaded word out of our decision-making and instead look to objective standards, uh, architectural standards, that might help communities um, look at what probably they most want to, to consider, or what they should be most wanting to consider when it comes to character, which is the form of the building. So one of our top 10 proposals is actually that uh, the state convene a working group that can help provide optional model guidelines for communities uh, that will help them, uh, through regulation, indicate what they mean by character. Now, I assume the main target of this effort is zoning regulations in some suburban, probably more wealthy communities. Is that accurate? Oh, yes. So, you know, I I actually think that the proposals that we are talking about uh, benefit both cities and suburbs. For example, you might be surprised to know that several of the state's largest cities do not allow accessory dwelling units, that kind of housing that I was just talking about. So for urban homeowners who might want a little extra income or for people who might want to live in um, some of the the, uh, better neighborhoods within those cities, they don't have a chance to do that because there's not that kind of naturally occurring affordable housing. Um, So cities can benefit too. You know, similarly, uh, you know, so, but, but you're right that, that the biggest target or the biggest um, interest uh, and the biggest place where opportunities uh, are needed and where change is needed is probably some of the more exclusive and less racially diverse suburbs. Now you have a a very personal reason for pursuing this goal, don't you? Yeah, you know, and I talked about this at the press conference uh, earlier this week. And, you know, I've been thinking about why I was interested in in housing segregation and and in opportunity. I I was really thinking back to my own family's story 
well, we lived in a neighborhood in Houston that was very, um, that was, uh, there was a lot of crime. And ultimately we ended up moving to a different town, a small town where we had uh, opportunities and I had opportunities that I would not have had if I had stayed in that Houston neighborhood. Now, let me just say, I'm a big proponent of cities. I live in a city. I've worked tirelessly to improve our zoning code in Hartford, Connecticut, where I live. Um, and I'm not saying that people should uh, must leave cities to have opportunity. But I, I do know that in my own personal history, that was the change that was needed for my family to have different opportunities. And I'll also say that uh, by the time uh, I, I got into high school, we actually moved back into, sub, uh, into Houston, uh, into a neighborhood that was, that was better than the one we left. So um, we, so I, I, you know, I've seen the full cycle myself and I think, you know, my personal story and, and interest in this really derives from that. You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Sarah Bronin, an architect and law professor, outgoing chairperson of the Hartford Planning and Zoning Commission, and also head of the new group Desegregate CT, which is seeking to change Connecticut's land use laws and regulations to make them more inclusive and equitable. Have you encountered any opposition so far in your your quest? I know this is a relatively new group, but the movement has been around for quite some time. Are people employing scare tactics to, to try to, to thwart this? Well, that's a great question. You know, we have had uh, one local news blog, and I won't uh, identify which one it is, but they've posted online a photo of uh, a building that they claim is the kind of housing that uh, groups like ours would like to bring to the exclusive suburb that uh, this news site operates in. And the picture depicts something that might not even be housing, I'm not sure, but it depicts the backside of a building that uh, is clearly a, a, a building that should never have been built in the first place. Um, and, you know, when you look at that, that kind of scare, those kind of scare tactics uh, turn people off to uh, a conversation and they prohibit reasonable debate about these issues. I think if people in that community understood what we were talking about and understood how it might benefit their town, actually, uh, I think they would they would change their some minds would be changed and and some they would, you would find some openness. But when you have local news sites promoting images like that and and those kind of scare tactics, it really prohibits the kind of conversation and the kind of honest conversation that we need to have in Connecticut about who we are as a state and what we want to be. Now, are are there legitimate objections in, in your view to reforming zoning laws in Connecticut? I I know New England loves its its local rule. We have 169 different, you know, local governments at least around Connecticut. Uh, you know, do people have a point if they say, you know, I want to maintain local control. I don't want the state telling me what I have to allow in my community. So I, as I, I think you know, I've been the chair of a city planning commission and where we have fully taken over local control and, uh, and, uh, and reformed our zoning code. We've overhauled our zoning code in Hartford. Uh, in addition, I'm a law professor and all I write about, or a lot of what I write about anyway, is, is zoning and local zoning. I believe that towns uh, should have uh but, you know, just based on those experiences, you know, I've exercised local control. 
and, and fully uh, in the case of Hartford. However, I do think that in some cases, the state needs to step in to advance priorities that are important to the state that local governments may not take into account. And the state does this already. There are a number of areas where the state says that local governments can or cannot zone in particular ways for these for particular uses the state has identified are important to advancing policies as a state. So one example would be um, would be uh, home childcare businesses. Another example is um, healthcare uh, pods, uh, group group living for healthcare reasons. So uh, the state has already stepped in, in and, and this, those are just a couple that I can think of off the bat, but the state has stepped in in a number of areas and that is true across the country. The state is the entity that gives local governments their power to zone and they do that through enabling acts that were adopted you know, just about 100 years ago in states around the country, uh, pursuant to a model enabling act that the Department of Commerce um, in the 1920s published. So all these states have enabling acts and they allow local governments to do certain things. And they've been amended over time to provide local governments with more direction. Because of the extent of our housing crisis and because of the extent of the discrimination and segregation that we see here in Connecticut, it shouldn't fall on local governments to try to address this issue themselves. And so I do think that the state legislature has a moment and has an obligation to try to address these issues at the state level. Are there other jurisdictions that have done what you're seeking to do in Connecticut to use as a model? Yes. So uh, the state of Oregon, the state of California, um, other other states have done, uh, the state of Hawaii does regional land use uh, by counties, actually. So there are a, a number of states that have innovated in the area of housing uh, in different respects. So California has long considered, uh, for example, transit-oriented uh, housing and has grappled with exactly how to do that, but there's momentum there. Oregon and, and uh, actually Minneapolis uh, has uh, eradicated single-family zoning as a city, of course, the largest city in Minnesota. Uh, they've said that uh, property owners can build two and, in some cases, three and four units uh, on their lot. We're actually not advocating for that in this proposal. We're advocating for towns to enable what we call middle housing, two and four units, in a, a percentage of land on within their community. Um, and particularly around transit stations. But some of the other states and, and even some cities have led the way in really looking at and tackling this issue from a lot of creative perspectives. Connecticut can learn from those and tailor some of those solutions to our state. Now, this is happening as the COVID-19 pandemic continues, and we see in some places people leaving the cities to go to the suburbs. Is that a consideration at all as you move forward in this effort? Is is the consideration that this that there is migration now between cities and suburbs Correct. within Connecticut? You know, we're what we're seeing a lot of sto- news stories about is uh, people from New York City moving to Connecticut and moving to Westchester County. So that's what I've seen uh, a lot of news and a lot of data about. I actually don't know whether people are leaving Connecticut cities to move to the suburbs. I don't see that 
at least in Hartford, all that much. And maybe there's some data out on that. So I'd be interested to know that. But this is a problem that is beyond, um, you know, our immediate circumstances of the pandemic. Our, this problem will not be addressed in the next, uh, you know, with, with this current wave of migration. What we're trying to do is to think 10, 20, 30 years out and think what is best for the state in the long term. Coronavirus and the changing housing patterns will um you know, they'll be, we'll see those over the next few couple of years. But what we're looking at is the 10 to 20 to 30 year horizon and what's best for the state uh, during that period. One of the things you mentioned in your proposal is getting away from half acre zoning in some communities. Uh, tell us why that's important and what that has, has done to the, the landscape of some parts of Connecticut. Well, what we what we we don't have a specific proposal on lot sizes at this point, and if you're talking about legislation, but what we do have on our website, and you can see it at uh, desegregatect.org, and then go to the data and resources page and look for our data. And what we've done is a deep dive of all the zoning codes in Connecticut. What we found is that the communities that have large minimum lot sizes, so half acre, one acre, two acres correlate pretty handily with the wealthiest communities. If you look, there's a there's a scatter plot chart done by the Connecticut Data Collaborative, which has been amazing to work with um, and, and help us sort through the data that we've collected and present it in a way that's, uh, that's uh, easily readable. But one of the charts that they produce shows that um, the a vast majority of towns with a one acre or a two acre lot minimum are, are above the median income or the average income for the state. So, uh, you know, that chart, I think, underscores what we've been saying or what we suspected all along, which is that the most exclusionary towns, the wealthiest towns, tend to have the most stringent requirements on new housing. Minimum lot size is one example. Maximum lot coverage is another, how much of uh, a lot you can build on. And minimum parking requirements is actually also another one. How many parking spaces you require uh, for housing. Best practices now, modern thinking, is that you don't really need minimum parking requirements at all. In our proposal, we've said, well, maybe you have one minimum parking requirement for an efficiency or studio, two minimum parking spaces for a two-unit dwell two dwelling or more. So that... Uh, issue of parking adds costs to development and makes it less affordable. There are some towns that actually require three parking spaces for even a studio. And that's just uh, needs to be corrected as a matter of public policy. Now, going back to the upcoming special session later this week, have you given up hope that this issue will be taken up in, in this session? Well, I think they've announced the topics for the July special session. So and and zoning reform and land use reform is not on it. Uh, we do hope that in the next special session, possibly in September, lawmakers will uh, have the foresight and courage to try to tackle this issue. I do think it is long overdue. Many of the proposals that we're talking about have gone through the legislature at least once in a prior session. And, uh, you know, again, these are these are things that are very common sense. It's not like... Um, you know, we're, we're pulling something out of thin air. We can point to examples all across the country of these policies being enacted at, at state or local levels in ways that benefit the 
social equity in a state, social cohesion, and benefit the economy of the state. So all of those things are all wrapped together. If people want to know more about Desegregate CT, what can they do? They can go to the website, desegregatect.org, and you can. Uh, there's a little button that says Take Action. Uh, you can go there. You can contact your legislate, le- legislator. You can look at our special session proposals. Uh, you can tune in to events. So we often meet on Tuesdays, and we discuss these issues. We learn. Uh, we strategize. And so all of these, it's all available on our website. She is Sarah Bronin, architect and law professor and head of Desegregate CT. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.